Good morning, Bethany Baptist. It is a true privilege to be with you all this morning and to be opening God's Word together as we go into the letter of Jude. The letter of Jude. I have one confession to make. This has been probably one of the most difficult uh, epistles or books that I've ever uh, studied for some reason, even though it's only 25 short verses. <laughs> But, as you can see, we will be dividing the letter into three points. And my prayer is that we will be able to clearly see that Jude wrote to the church or churches for them to contend for the faith, contend with the faith, and persevere in the faith as they are called, loved, and secured in Christ until His glorious return. With that, let us read the letter of Jude. <clears throat> Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the, about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people pervert, who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus our Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. In the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound in everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, in, on the strength of their, of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own, their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet, these people slander whatever they don't understand, and the very things they do not understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain. Blown along with by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to, and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed and in their ungodliness. And of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. 
They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the, the, the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without, without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. In the spirit of harmony and coexistence, the world has become an expert preacher of tolerance and inclusion. The agenda can be found anywhere, from cereal boxes to shampoo bottles to even beer. The message is clear. You're either tolerant or you're out, and you must hold to their standards of tolerance. If not, you're declared anathema before the world. No one hires you. No one buys from you. No one hears you. And the fear instilled in the imagination of the people whose world depends on acceptance is very powerful. We all want to be accepted. We all desire to be influential. We all want to change the world and be part of it. And this is the driving desire, I think, of many evangelicals who are zealous for evangelism. They want to see lives restored and saved everywhere. They want to see people come to Christ and be genuinely, genuinely changed, or at least partly changed. Take, for example, an upcoming conference for parents and leaders of LGBTQ children that will be held by some very prominent names in the larger evangelical realm. In their own words, the conference seeks to, quote, equip, refresh, and inspire as you hear from leading communicators on topics that speak to your heart, soul, and mind, unquote. Another statement says, quote, no matter what theological stands you hold, we invite you to listen, reflect, and learn as we approach this topic from the quieter middle space, unquote. And we cannot really understand what exactly it is that they mean unless we know more about the leading communicators, right? Two of which are men married to men, and another whose mind changed completely regarding the biblical stance on sexuality. We cannot help but wonder, what kind of middle space are they seeking to communicate? What are they going to teach to many desperate parents and leaders seeking answers about a very serious issue? If the Bible is clear about these specific issues, how will two men married to men explain what God's word affirms regarding sexual immorality and sin? On the other hand, how should the church respond? Whose authority will the church uphold? Should the church really find a quieter middle space? 
or create yet another controversy, risking being viewed as bigoted, schismatic, and intolerant. And though often neglected for its brevity, the letter of Jude breaks any theological or doctrinal ambiguity and sets for us a short and sweet reminder that the church's one and only foundation for her faith and practice is found in the word of God as fulfilled by Christ Jesus and explained by the apostles. But before we get into the meat of the letter, we must see who Jude was and where he came from, right? We have to understand where he was from, what he was thinking, what he was facing. Jude or Judas, the Greek translation of the the Hebrew name Judah, identifies himself first as a servant of Jesus Christ and second as the brother of James. His first identification is a very common one in the letters written by the apostles, right? They call themselves servants or slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they serve him by proclaiming and faithfully preaching the life, work, death, and resurrection of Jesus to his own people. The gospel was their lives, work, and they joyfully lived for their Lord. They humbly accepted their status of slaves because it was not about their position in society, but about the authority and majesty and sovereignty of their master. Secondly, he says he's a brother of James, the priest of the church in Jerusalem, most likely, the guy who wrote the letter of James, and brother of the Lord, as Matthew 13 and 1 Corinthians 15 both testify. Jude, like James, would have been the half-brother of our Lord. And we don't know who the specific recipients are, right? It could have well been one church or many churches in one area, but Jude leaves that information out. Jude is considered one of the general epistles or a Catholic epistle with small c, not capital C, Catholic because it was not addressed to a certain group, or a certain church, or a certain region. He meant uh, for the letter to be sent out everywhere. Nevertheless, we can easily see that he meant the letter to be read by a church, a congregation. He calls them God's holy people, or saints. The letter was written to those who have been called, who are loved in God, and kept for Jesus Christ. And this triad of adjectives in relationship to the readers is very much intentional. Its implications and applications can be seen throughout the whole letter and are made even more manifest as we will see at the end of the letter. God the Father graciously and sovereignly calls those who are to be saved. And this call is not spurred in God by, one, by the people's own desire or power to be saved, but only by his love. His choosing is because of his love. And when he calls them, and they are in his love as God's holy people, they are powerfully and faithfully kept until the end by and for Jesus Christ himself. So it is in this truth that the church faces threats and divisions. But the church can rest in the power of God alone to be kept above the fires of judgment, as he is the one who calls and loves his people, those bought and redeemed by the blood of their Savior, his own Son. 
This is also Jude's prayer. If you look again in verse 2, when he prays for the church to abundantly receive mercy, for the fight against the opponents of the faith, for peace to abound within them in the love of God through Christ, and for their own love, for their Lord and for his people to increase, as, it was, as, it, as love is what hinges everything uh, together. So in two short verses, Jude has explained who their God is and what he has done, and who they are and where they stand in relationship to their sovereign Lord. So now we can begin the letter, the meat of the letter. Again, he says in verse 3, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Jude probably wanted to expound on the topic of salvation and encourage them to increase in joy and praise for the God who sovereignly saves the otherwise unsavable. Instead, what they received was an urgent call to, call to contend, to strive intensely and agonize for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Jude makes it clear that there were some amid the church who had secretly made their way into the community. They had participated in the worship and life of the church, as verse 12 puts it. They had been given opportunity to probably even speak publicly, as we know some of their blasphemous conclusions regarding the angels and dreams, right? And they had earned the trust of some of them in the church who followed their, their uh, teachings and lifestyles. It is no secret at this point that their way of living was in utter disobedience to the faith the church had to contend for. We read that they were ungodly people. They saw the grace of God and the cross of Christ as a path to live in sin. And that were, through their wicked reasoning and sinful lifestyles, they denied the authority and lordship of Jesus, thus denying the faith altogether through which the church knows her Lord and knows what delights him. This faith is not just a mere experience or a feeling that can be molded according to the fancies of the culture or according to our own emotions, as the opponents of the faith probably confessed at that time. This faith was a body of belief. The very words of Christ Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the apostolic teachings on which the church is built upon. This faith is the truth of the Holy God regarding himself and mankind that stands the test of time and the threats of worldly thinking. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, says Paul. If a church loses its faith, if it loses the gospel, it loses Christ. And to witness this reality in many denominations and churches is always heartbreaking. We think of the rapid doctrinal compromises within the United Methodist denomination that led to its complete division, or of the slow but weakening change in the Ang Anglican Church's doctrine on sexual sin, or the constant threats that the Presbyterian Church in America must endure year after year regarding side A or side B gay Christians or prominent evangelical leaders, completely reformulating their thinking according not to the faith once for all entrusted to the saints, but according to their own unstable feelings and pressures from the world. 
thus leading thousands of parents into deeper despair regarding the lives of their broken children. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand that many of the leading figures in these changes uh, were sincerely concerned for, for evangelism and attracting people to God. But one can be sincerely wrong about anything. The common salvation of which Jude wanted to originally write for the church depends on the true faith of that church, namely the gospel. Love and concern for the lost should not lead us to lose our conviction. Rather, our conviction in the faith as inherited from the apostles should lead us to care and love and call the lost to faith in Christ alone. So church, as application, let us ask ourselves, are we willing to contend for the faith that has once for all entrusted, been entrusted to us? Are we able to trust in the power of the one who called us to his salvation by his grace that we can stand firm in the face of inter internal threats against our, own, uh, our confession that Christ alone is the Lord of the church? Are we able to passionately, for the sake of Christ's glory and his church, uphold the faith even when our own seem to abandon it? We have established that the life of the church, namely the gospel, they depended on their contending for the gospel. However, the contention goes beyond self-preservation, right? Jude speaks of a condemnation that was written long ago for those who began to create divisions and doubt in the church. While the opponents basked in their arrogance and shameless sins, thinking that they can presume on God's grace, they are storing up wrath against themselves for the day of God's wrath, as Romans 2 affirms. The church cannot stay quiet in the face of imminent judgment for the opponents, as it affects both the holiness of the church and her witness before the unbelieving world. Jude goes on to provide a detailed description of the judgment and condemnation for those who foolishly reject the authority of Christ Jesus and gives his readers the way to contend with the faith. So let us again read verses 5 through 16. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand and the very things they do, not, they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. 
These people are blemishes, are your, at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves, they are clouds without rain, blown along, along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is, co- is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of, the, of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and have spoken against, and of all the defined words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Those who did not learn history are bound to repeat it. Or so goes a phrase meant to bring to the mind of younger generations uh, to a need to learn from the past. Learn its faults, its sins, its pains, so that the mistakes of those before are not repeated. So how more accurate is this for the Christian? To remember the doctrine of Scripture regarding holiness, majesty, the holiness, the majesty, and the power of God, and the sinfulness and powerlessness of mankind in his utter helplessness before death as the ultimate judge, uh, punishment for sin. For the Christians of old and now, our hope of salvation, our only security in this life, and our only boast in the glory to come are found in, in Christ alone as he has revealed himself in his most holy word. If we are those who are called, loved by God, and kept for Christ, what is it that makes these opponents such a threat to the church? In verse 8, we read that they rely on their dreams, right? It says, in the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on the celestial beings. So how do you use faith and reason against dreams, right? And these are not just prophetic dreams as the Old Testament would find, as we would find in the Old Testament, like Joseph's dreams or Ezekiel's. They're fantasies of sin. They fantasize day and night. Their dreams were the basis for their perdition. They saw them as authoritative to justify their licentious lifestyle. Another danger is found in verse 11, where Jude compares these false teachers to Cain, Balaam, and Korah, each of these displaying a different aspect of why it is that these people deserve severe condemnation. Like Cain in Genesis 4, they had no regard for what the Lord desired, and they had no regard for the souls of their brothers. Like Balaam in Numbers 31, out of greed, they made people fall under sin and join in their condemnation. Like Korah in Numbers 16, they rebelled against the order of God's leadership and rejected the faith and message of the church for their lives. And it is after these examples of, of how these people are behaving that the judgments are now made clear. Jude compares the condemnation condemnation of the opponents to three different events, as we read. Israel in the wilderness in Numbers 14, 
the angels who did not keep their proper positions among men in Genesis 6, in Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. These are all meant to show a a different aspect of the judgment that will befall the opponents of the faith. First, though they once seemed to be part of the church, as those who were delivered from Egypt and vowed to be God's people, they turned from trusting God to grumbling and even desiring to go back to Egypt and its gods. The Lord's judgment promised that none of the ones who participated and witnessed his glory would see the land and enter his rest. Like Paul in 1 Corinthians, Jude's use of this ultimate Old Testament example of judgment is to warn against the bitter end and destruction of those who once tasted of the goodness of the Lord and went back to their old idolatrous and sinful ways. The second example comes from Genesis 6. The angels did not keep their proper positions of authority above men, but instead went against the authority of the Lord and became involved with the daughters of men. Their pride led them to their downfall as they saw the purpose for which they were created and they rejected it. Both, but Jude and Genesis emphasize that both pride and sexual deviation led to judgment of these angelic beings. His use, as well as Peter's in 2 Peter 2, served to give the terrible warning that God does not spare even the angels, but sin needs to be paid for. Even the angelic beings, who are higher in power and authority than men, whose ministry is to be before the presence of God every single day, were now bound with everlasting chains for the day of judgment. Lastly, and probably the strongest and clearest example of judgment is found in Genesis 19, as used by Jude. The obvious depiction of the cause for their destruction by fire and brimstone was their sexual immorality. And of course, I'm talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. There is no confusion here as to what was going on among the opponents of the faith. We are not explicitly told that they were engaging in homosexual acts, but that they were indeed engaging in rejection of Christ's sovereign authority. They were proud, like the men Uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were proud of themselves as lords over their own lives and were engaging in acts that were aberrant and perverse, all the while still being amongst God's people. Both Paul and Jude warned that this served as an example of eternal judgment and even that, that even those cities surrounding Sodom and Gomorrah were affected by their punishment. And here we see here we see the unchangeable nature of our God, right? In the face of, of, of trials, in the face of challenges, in the face of false teaching, of judgment, he remains faithful. In every single one of these judgments, we can see that it was God all along who was keeping his church. It was God all along who was keeping his people. It was a God of covenants who judged those who went against his authority.
And unfortunately, what we see as well is that these people present a very, very uh, terrible danger to the church. If you read in uh, verses 12, um, what they are to the church is this. These people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming of their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. And Jude also tells us what they do to the church. It says that these people are grumblers. They're fault finders. They follow their own desires. They boast about themselves. And they flatter others for their own advantage. So see, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints was meant to keep the church pure. It was meant to keep the church holy. The call to the church to contend was to expose those who were going against God's authority. For the faithfulness, for the holiness and purity of the church was at risk. And even though, even though we see that the church is those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for in Jesus Christ, it is inevitable that some will be punished. It's inevitable that some will be judged as they also engage and are lured by the false teachings of those who secretly infiltrate God's holy people. But I find it extremely, uh, extremely amazing how even in a book that is not meant to be canonical, even in a book that is not meant to be uh, or at least not considered as part of the church, uh, as part of the church canon, we can see that the Lord still uh, reflects what he's going to do to these people to keep his church. Enoch prophesied, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their, ungod in, in their ungodliness. And of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Even in that illustration of Jude using a book that is not part of the canon, we can see that the Lord is promising to keep his people. He's promising to, to, to purge them from all ungodliness. He's promising to judge those who brought upon them judgment. In that we see the faithfulness, the love, and the power of God to finish what he started in his church. It is in this truth that Jude calls us to persevere. We know that we are those who are called, sovereignly called by the Father. We are loved by him and kept for by and for Jesus Christ. So it is in this truth that we must remember, Jude says, what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. And we go to, uh, to point three. Please read, let us read again uh, verses 17 through 25. 
But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not, lead, and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the uh, clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. It was in the last century, in the 80s, when a new controversy, or at least not a new controversy, but um, a recently reformulated controversy and, and, and um, heresy was brought forth uh, before uh, the church. And this was called, this controversy was labeled, labeled the uh, Lordship Salvation Controversy. There were some scholars and erudites and professors who uh, thought that um, the Christian, or at least some Christians, were able to come to God in faith as their Savior, but not as their Lord. They were able to come and, and, and profess faith in Christ, but they didn't have to submit to His authority. They didn't have to live according to His Word. It was against this controversy that many um, evangelicals came together and they professed that there was no such thing as uh, a Christian who has no good works, right? There was no such thing as a Christian who cannot display his faith by his life. For the Christian, regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, who sees the power of God, who sees the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ in his blood, he has no choice but to serve him, right? That is what Jude says. He is now the slave of Jesus Christ, even though he was his own half-brother. Instead, Jude saw the resurrected Jesus, and he saw the finished work of Christ for all sinners, and he was willing to serve him as his slave, as his servant, as one more of his disciples. So is there a possibility, or is it possible for a Christian or for someone who calls himself a Christian to only see Jesus Christ as their Savior but not as their Lord? What kind of Jesus is that? What kind of Jesus is it that cannot change the utter wickedness and corruption of, of a wretched sinner? That is no Jesus at all. That is no Savior. That is no Lord. 
And Jude, for these people, he has very strong words, right? He says, these are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. And he said, this is not new. This will always pop up. It always comes up in the history of the church. The, the apostles says, uh, foretold that in the last times, there would always be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. The church was not taken by surprise, or shouldn't have been taken by surprise. Because as we see, God was not taken by surprise. He had already declared a judgment of these people from long ago. And then Jude uh, reminds uh, the church to, to build themselves up in the most holy faith. To see the, this faith as, as one that would keep them all the way to the end. And to pray in the Holy Spirit. To build each other up. To grow in maturity and sanctification. To love one another as they wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring them to eternal life. How many times do we ask ourselves, how long, O oh Lord, as we witness what's going on, not just in the world, but also in the church? How many times do we cry of, uh, when a prominent leader or a pastor says that they no longer hold to the faith that they once professed, that they once confessed? How many deconstructionists do we see that deny the, the authority and the lordship of Christ? We ask, how long, O oh Lord? How long? But Jude says that in the meantime, we are not meant to just be, um, we're, we're meant to be active, right? We are meant to be active in our faith. We are meant to be merciful to those who doubt. We are meant to save others by snatching them from the fire. We are meant to walk with those who are doubting. We are meant to walk with those who, to, who have denied the faith. Because we know that the power to save does not come from how faithfully we hold to something. It comes from the power of God alone. And then, as it is um, customary, uh, if for some letters, Jude finishes his letter with a doxology. With a doxology. That is completely different from, from many of the letters of Paul and other letters who, 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 that are finished with a, uh, a greeting, with, with him sending greetings and farewells to people. Instead, Jude takes this, um, this space to praise the Lord, to, rem to remind Christians and to remind them of, of, of who it is that they worship, right? He reminds them that he is the one who is able to keep them from stumbling. He is the one who will present them before the glorious presence of God. And he will do so, he will do so joyfully. 
And then at the end, he pronounces what I think it is one of the most beautiful benedictions, or at least apologies, for the Christian to, to hold until the return of our Lord Jesus. He says, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. This is the reason for why we wait. This is the reason for why we still hold to that faith once for all delivered to the saints. That it is God alone who will keep us from beginning to end. It is God alone who started the work and it is God alone who will finish it. By the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his grace and in his love we will see his rest and we will enter his glory. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, acknowledging that we still need you. That though your faith, Lord, was once for all delivered to the saints, we are a people who tend to forget and we tend to, um, Lord, just try to uh, do everything by our own power. But Lord, remind us that you hold the power to save. Lord, remind us that our work is not in vain. For you have already kept those who you've called and loved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.